0: Good morning, church. Grateful to worship with you today. I'm grateful that our worship set on any given Sunday morning will go from historical standards to modern songs. I'm glad that all of us with one voice get to lift high the name of Jesus Christ. And you're gonna need your Bible this morning. So we're gonna be in Joshua starting in chapter five. And let me encourage you to go ahead and open up your Bible. And if you don't have one with you, that's all right we've got one for you there in the pew rack and if you're using that black bible i'll give you a shortcut you'll find our passage starting on page 187 uh, in the pew bible every sunday morning i want to encourage you to bring a bible with you Uh, i'm a big analog bible fan versus digital bible fan i mean digital has its place and that's fine but let me encourage you bring a bible with you every sunday morning and if you don't have one you need one or uh, you want one that's maybe a little easier to read, we have Bibles for you out here in this upper lobby. Just grab one and go. You don't have to ask. Just throw it under your arm and run out the door like you stole it, and we'll be so happy that you have a Bible with you. Uh, This morning, we're going to finish chapter 5 of Joshua and uh, take in all of chapter 6 in this fascinating story. How is it that finite human beings are supposed to make sense of the infinite God. What sort of language and words do we use, should we use to help us with our tiny, smooth brains make sense of the infinite, the omnipotent, the eternal? Well, the Bible helps us. And what the Bible does to help us understand our enormous, majestic, glorious God is give us word pictures plucked from our lives to help us make sense of the many different facets of God's character and his actions on our behalf. So for example, um, whenever you pray Our Father, to call God Father is to use a word picture from everyday life that communicates something to us about his character, who he is, what he's like. When you call him Father, it means something. Psalm 23 just on its own gives us a multitude of word pictures. God is our shepherd, God is our guide, God is our host, God is our dwelling place. So the Bible over and over gives us these word pictures to help us understand the infinite glorious character of God and this morning our passage deals with one particular aspect of God's character in his work. The passage we're studying this morning presents to us God as a soldier, God as a warrior, God as a champion. He's the God of armies. He's the God who fights. Now look, there are times when we need God to be gentle and lowly. There are times when we need him to be meek and mild, but there are times when we need him to be the roaring lion who consumes his enemies and fights and wins for his people. And our passage today gives us as clear a picture as we will find in Scripture of what it is like when God fights and wins and gives that victory to His people. And my goal today is for you to trust God explicitly. It's not so much a call to action as it is the posture that in the midst of the warfare of life, every battle you face, the great battle for your soul, you would trust the Lord explicitly. But I've got a real challenge in front of me today, and the challenge is this. It is your familiarity with the story of the walls of Jericho. That's a problem for me, the preacher, because this story has been veggie to death. <laughs> and what happens is you have, you have worship songs that are meaningful to you, and you have internet preachers and book writers who have allegorized this story to the point of almost nonsense so that the walls of Jericho have become little more than just whatever sort of daily struggle you're having so the walls of Jericho represent your cranky boss or your financial trouble or your fitness goals and God's gonna give you your breakthrough and he's gonna bring down those walls he's gonna get you the victory And look, God does those things. That's not wrong to say God helps us even in the minutia, the small things of life. That's the kind of God he is. But it's really hard for us to pull that from Joshua chapters 5 and 6. Because this story is much grander than our daily little skirmishes. If we're not careful, what we do with this story is we turn ourselves into God and him into our servant. So we articulate to him, here's my battle and here's my plan." And here's what I need you to do, and the timeline I need you to do it on. In Jesus' name, amen. Now get to it. And we lower him to something little more than a sky genie who does our bidding. But if you will look at this story with fresh eyes this morning, you're going to be stunned at what you find of God, his might, his power, his ability, the sureness of his victory. You need a greater vision. Of what happens at jericho and i hope to give that to you today so that you will trust god explicitly submit to him in everything And so our passage today gives us this vivid depiction of god as one who fights what do we see what are we looking at when we see god fighting to accomplish our redemption so i want you to follow along with me as i read joshua starting in chapter 5 verse 13, and we're just going to truck all the way through to the end of chapter 6, all right? Joshua chapter 5, starting in verse 13. When Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua approached him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, I have now come as commander of the Lord's army. Then Joshua bowed with his face to the ground in worship and asked him, What does my Lord want to say to his servant? The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Remove the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did that. Now Jericho was strongly fortified because of the Israelites, no one leaving or entering. The Lord said to Joshua, look, I have handed Jericho its king and its best soldiers over to you. March around the city with all the men of war, circling the city one time. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry seven ram's horn trumpets in front of the ark. But on the seventh day, march around the city seven times while the priests blow the trumpets. When there is a prolonged blast of the horn and you hear its sound, have all the troops give a mighty shout. Then the city wall will collapse and the troops will advance each man straight ahead. So Joshua, son of Nun, summoned the priests and said to them, take up the Ark of the Covenant and have seven priests carry seven trumpets in front of the Ark of the Lord. He said to the troops, move forward, march around the city and have the armed men go ahead of the Ark of the Lord. After Joshua had spoken to the troops, seven priests carrying seven trumpets before the Lord moved forward and blew the trumpets. The ark of the Lord's covenant followed them. While the trumpets were blowing, the armed men went in front of the priests who blew the trumpets and the rear guard went behind the ark. But Joshua had commanded the troops, do not shout or let your voice be heard. Don't let one word come out of your mouth until the time I say shout. Then you are to shout. So the ark of the Lord was carried around the city, circling it once. They returned to the camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning. The priests took the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests, carrying seven trumpets, marched in front of the ark of the Lord. While the trumpets were blowing, the armed men went in front of them, and the rear guard went behind the ark of the Lord. On the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days." Early on the seventh day, they started at dawn and marched around the city seven times in the same way. That was the only day they marched around the city seven times. After the seventh time, the priests blew the trumpets, and Joshua said to the troops, "'Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, but the city and everything in it are set apart to the Lord for destruction. "'Only Rahab the prostitute and everyone with her in the house will live.'" Because she hid the messengers we sent. But keep yourselves from the things set apart or you will be set apart for destruction. If you take any of those things, you will set apart the camp of Israel for destruction and make trouble for it. For all the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are dedicated to the Lord and must go into the Lord's treasury. So the troops shouted and the trumpets sounded. When they heard the blast of the trumpet, the troops gave a great shout and the wall collapsed. The troops advanced into the city. Each man straight ahead and they captured the city. They completely destroyed everything in the city with the sword. Every man and woman, both young and old, and every ox, sheep, and donkey. Joshua said to the two men who had scouted the land, Go to the prostitute's house and bring the woman out of there and all who were with her just as you swore to her. So the young men who had scouted went in and brought out Rahab and her father, mother, brothers, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her whole family and settled them outside the camp of Israel. They burned the city and everything in it, but they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. However, Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute, her father's family, and all who belonged to her because she hid the messengers Joshua had sent to spy on Jericho and she still lives in Israel today. At that time, Joshua imposed this curse. The man who undertakes the rebuilding of this city, Jericho, is cursed before the Lord. He will lay its foundation at the cost of his firstborn. He will finish its gates at the cost of his youngest. And the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout the land. What's this story about? It's about the God fights and gives that victory to his people. He is the champion of your redemption. And so what are we looking at when we see God go to battle on behalf of his people? What are we looking at when we think of God as a soldier? This story gives us three descriptions of our God in battle. The first description is this, God's the warrior to whom we submit. He's the warrior to whom we submit. At the end of chapter five, I think it's so important to include this little story with the story of Jericho in chapter six. Uh, Because chapter five opens with this sort of an odd scene. Joshua sees a man, a divine man, with a sword in his hand. And this individual is prepared for battle. The appearance was threatening enough that Joshua has to ask this man Are you with us or are you against us? You on our side or Jericho's side? And the man answered in verse 14 neither. I've come as the commander of the Lord's army. So the warrior was not present to join Joshua's forces, but really, in a very real sense, this warrior is present to lead Joshua's forces. He's there as the leader of the Lord's armies. Joshua and his men are to follow this leader. And so, who is this commander? Who is this one that shows up and talks to Joshua here at the end of chapter 5? We're not told explicitly in the story. We're given the title of this person, but we're not told explicitly who it is. So you have a couple of options to choose from. One option is, this is the angel of the Lord, and that's enough. To be awesome incredible that that this is the lord god's representative he, he has come to uh to lead uh, the lord's army but uh it could be this is an angel of the lord but here's another option and this is where i land i could be wrong here because the bible doesn't say this is explicitly who it is but here's where i land i think this is jesus this is a pre-incarnate appearance of christ The word we would use is a Christophany. This is a Christophany. Now Joshua doesn't know exactly who he's looking at. He can't say this is the true and greater Joshua, one who bears the same name as me. But he knows that this one is different. And and, and there's two reasons from the story that that I think this is Jesus standing in front of Joshua. One reason is because Joshua worships this God-man. And in the Bible, only God receives worship. Every time an angel is worshiped in scripture, he pushes that worship away, redirects it. Don't worship me, worship God. The second reason in the story that that I feel like this is Jesus uh, is because Joshua, in his submission, ascribes power and authority to this person, the type of which that you would only ascribe to God. What does my Lord want to say to his servant? Here's Joshua in submission uh, to the Lord. I think it's Jesus and I think that uh, it doesn't have to be Jesus for this episode to have great meaning and power for us but I think it helps us in a tremendous way if you think about this little scene in comparison to the end of the Garden of Eden episode Adam and Eve after breaking God's law are cast out of the Garden of Eden and the entrance to the Garden of Eden is guarded by an angel who holds a flaming sword. And here we have God's people entering the promised land, about to take their promise, and they're led into the promised land by this representative of the Lord who holds a sword in his hand. I think there's a connection there that's really important for our understanding and i think the possibility that this might be jesus only adds even further to the fact that he is the way the truth and the life and no one comes to the father but through him so here we have the lord's representative in front of the lord's servant and he tells him take off your sandals this is holy ground joshua did that and don't you want that to be said about your life and your relationship with god Whatever God said, I did that. I want to be that sort of person, and so do you. And so what's the whole point of this scene? The the point of this scene is, is not the question of whether or not God is on Israel's side. The question is, whose side is Israel on? Whose side is Joshua on? That's what has to be settled here at the forefront. Joshua doesn't win the battle because he drags God with him. This battle is going to be won because Joshua and Israel follow the Lord. God is on God's side. He's not on your team's side, and he's not on your country's side, and he's not on your side. God is on God's side, and that's where we need to be as well. The question at the outset here is whose side am I on? The opening scene calls us to evaluate our submission to God. Do we treat God as if he is merely a means to the ends that we want or we think we need, or are we submitted to him wholly and completely? Even Jesus prayed in the hours before his crucifixion, not my will, but your will be done, and that will took him to the cross for your salvation. And so many Christians will pray something, and then we'll say as a tag onto that prayer, if it be your will. That's kind of our get-out-of-jail-free card for praying things that we want, but we're not sure if that's what God wants for us. But God, if I say, you know that I really want it, and so maybe now that you know I want it, you'll give this to me, if it be your will. But what if we just prayed, God, give me your will? I, I can't see it. I know your revealed will. I don't know your circumstantial will. God, just give me your will. Wherever you're leading, I want to follow. Where you're going, I want to be there. God, I'm not going to drag you into my self-appointed skirmishes. I'm going to follow you into the promised land that you have for me. Are you submitted to the Lord? And if you're not a follower of Jesus, this is going to be a, a real hard thing for you to wrestle with. What so many people think is that our salvation is based on moral merit and so we would come before God and we would argue why he should give us the thing that we feel like we've achieved or the reasons why he should not withhold it from us but what salvation requires is a person submitted wholly and completely to the Lord because your moral merit isn't gonna get you the sort of salvation you think you deserve. If we got what we deserved based on our morality, it would be hell and nothing less forever and ever and ever. But because he's a God of compassion and grace and mercy, if you will submit to him, turn from everything in your life that you think gives you value and credit before him, and instead just come confessing your sin, in your worthlessness, in his greatness, in his love, in his mercy, you'll find forgiveness, and you'll find new life, and you'll find salvation in him if you will submit. That's hard to do, isn't it? It is. But he's God, and you're not. And we need his grace, his love, his mercy for the salvation that our souls require. God is not at our disposal to do our bidding as if we bark the orders and he follows. What kind of God would he be if that were the case? But instead, he is God. We are his people. He isn't on our side. We must be on his side. When I say he's not on our side, that's not to mean he's indifferent or uncaring or he doesn't know. It. No, Scripture, the witness of Scripture is clear on this, that he knows you and loves you and is compassionate. But God is for God and we must submit to him. So what are we looking at when we see God in battle? He's the warrior to whom we submit. And Second, this story teaches us that God is the leader whose plan we follow. When God fights on our behalf, He's the leader whose plan we have to follow. The bulk of chapter 6 describes the destruction of Jericho. And there's so much detail. We, we read through a lot when we went through this story just now. Maybe it might help you. It helps me if I can see a structure for the passage. That helps my brain get traction on that. Action of what's going on. So let me show you just a real simple structure for verses 1 to 24. It begins in verses 1 to 5 with God's instructions. So verses 1 to 5, God instructs Joshua here's what days 1 through 6 are going to look like, and here's what day 7 is going to look like, Joshua. Get to it. Joshua did that. He goes and he gives these instructions. So we, in verses 6 to 11, we have the events of day 1. In verses 12 to 14, we have the events of days two through six. And then verses 15 to 24, we have the events of day seven. So God's instructions are this. Here's the plan. The plan is that once per day for six days, the city is to be marched around by seven priests blowing seven ram's horns. And then there are other priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant And then along with them are the fighting men. There is to be silence. The only sound is to be the the ram's horns. And then on day seven, they're to show back up and they are to do the same thing seven times. March around the city seven times. On day seven, seven priests blowing seven horns, Ark of the Covenant, and the fighting men silent with them. And then at the end of the seventh trip around the city... A long blow on the seven horns by the seven priests, followed by a loud shout by the soldiers, and then the walls are going to collapse. And when the walls collapse, they are to enter the city, they are to set aside all the treasure for the house of the Lord, and they are to destroy everyone and everything inside the city. We've got to have a firm grasp on this plan because the plan and its fulfillment are the major teaching point of chapter 6. And if we're going to understand God's plan for his people, the very first thing I think we ought to talk about is the brutality of that plan. On the back of your bulletin, when you came in this morning, I hope you grabbed a bulletin. If you didn't, they'll be right out there. But on the back of your bulletin is an excerpt from an article that talks a bit more in depth about the brutality? How do we make sense of what we might label as genocide or ethnic cleansing? It's not those things, but how are we to make sense of the brutality of that story? I want to encourage you to read that or grab it on your way out. Uh, Check out the article online by Justin Taylor. It's a really fantastic resource, Um, but let's talk about it here and now. Let's make sense real quick of the brutality because it's shocking brutality. And I'm not comfortable with preacher types who just kind of write it off as, well, God's a creator, he has the right to do with his creation what he wants to do. God's holy, he judges. Look, those things are right and true, and that's enough, but I don't think we just have to settle with, well, it's just God's prerogative, and he's just going to do it, and you just got to shut up and like it. So let's let's make sense of what's going on here the best we can. Our understanding of the brutality in this story actually begins in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 15, God is speaking to Abraham. He has him uh, at the border of the promised land. And he's telling Abraham, you're you're not going to go here yet. This is for a future day, but I want you to see what God said to Abraham in Genesis 15, 16. He told Abraham, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. The Amorites, these people who are living in the promised land at the time Abraham scopes it out. And God says, this isn't your land yet. It belongs to them. And I'm extending patience and grace for a period of time. But in the fourth generation, the God who knows all things knows that their rebellion will continue. It will reach its apex and it will be time for judgment. And so Israel's entrance into the promised land is an act of judgment by God after a prolonged period of patience and grace and compassion extended to those people. God is gracious even to non-Israel in the Old Testament. So the story begins there in Genesis 15. Uh, God is going to withhold punishment. By the time we get to Joshua chapter 6... The time of judgment has arrived. And the people who are living in the land, the people who will face the judgment of God at the hands of the Israeli army, uh, these are not innocent people just doing their best to get along. They, They are grotesque sinners, and their sin and their rebellion and their human rights violations are clearly articulated throughout Scripture. You can find descriptions of them in Leviticus 18 as well as in Deuteronomy 18. And as Israel enters the promised land as the arm of God's judgment, they have to be careful not to have a holier-than-thou attitude because God's not bringing them into the land because they are so righteous and the other people are so unrighteous. And God makes this clear in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. I think these are two of the most important verses for your understanding of Old Testament warfare. What's happening In Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, God tells Israel, When the Lord your God drives them out before you, these Canaanites, when He drives them out before you, do not say to yourself, The Lord brought me in to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. Instead, the Lord will drive out these nations before you because of their wickedness. It's not because Israel is so holy and so righteous and so great and so chosen. But God is going to use them as his hand of judgment against these sinful peoples. And God's going to repeat that pattern a few generations after this one when the Assyrian army is used by God as his hand of judgment against the northern kingdom of Israel. And then the Babylonian army is used as God's arm of judgment against the southern kingdom of Judah. God is consistent in his just judgment on sin. So the conquest of the promised land is not a bunch of land-hungry marauders wiping out innocent God-fearing people by the thousands. In the biblical view, the God of the Bible uses unrighteous Israel as the instrument of his judgment on a people who had persistently, constantly, generation after generation, rebelled against God and rejoiced in their sin. This is not an act of genocide or ethnic cleansing. The fact that Uh, Rahab survives and her family with her. This is not ethnic cleansing. If it was, there would be no mercy, no grace shown to Rahab. She'd be done. So it's not fair to call this genocide or to call it ethnic cleansing. That's not what it is. It is the fair and just judgment of a most holy God. That doesn't make the brutality any more palatable But at least it gives us an Old Testament lens through which to understand it and approach it. It's brutal. Ultimately, we're going to have to ask hard questions of ourselves when we consider the brutality of God, the judgment of God on sin. Because we're not just going to struggle with his judgment against the Canaanites. Then you've got to look in the mirror and say, but what about me and my sin?" And then you got to look at the cross and you got to say, what about Christ on the cross? His patient judgment is just and right, and there is an escape for all those who put their faith in Christ. So the plan of God here in Joshua 6, it's a brutal plan. But it does not show God to be a moral monster or some tyrant in the sky. He is the just and holy and patient judge of mankind. That's not all that we need to say about this plan, though. We need to talk about how unorthodox this plan is for sure. No military strategist would devise a plan like this. No soldier, when hearing the plan, was like, yes, this is what I was thinking the whole time. Get those ram's horns, get on your marching sandals, and we're going to go take this wall down. It, this plan is just as foolish As building an enormous boat in the middle of the desert in anticipation of a flood. It's just as foolish as stepping into a raging river expecting those waters to part for safe passage. The plan is unorthodox, it is outrageous. That's not all that needs to be said about this plan. This plan is a miracle. It's as much a miracle as the parting of the Jordan River. And with every miracle, it carries with it a message. It communicates to us something about God. And the message of this miracle is that the battle is the Lord's. The focal point of this daily parade around Jericho is the Ark of the Covenant. We talked about this last week and the week before. The Ark of the Covenant, that holy, sacred box that represents God's presence with His people. It's the symbol of God's presence with His people. And so the ark is the focal point of that daily parade. In other words, God is leading his people, and God is fulfilling his promise to them. God is the one bringing judgment on Jericho. The battle belongs to the Lord. And it's vital that you and I see that God is the one who accomplishes Now, someone somewhere might have said, well, you know, actually what happened was um, the vibrations from the daily marching... Uh, coupled with the vibrations from the ram's horns, created fractures in the wall that the builders of the walls couldn't possibly have understood, and that's how all this happened. And that's not true. This is a miracle. Walls don't fall by walking around them. I invite you, go outside now and just start hoofing it. Things don't fall down by marching. Things don't fall down by blowing a ram's horn. Miracles happen when God leads His people. The battle belongs to the Lord. other thing that's got to be said about this plan is this plan required obedience. The priests and the soldiers have to do exactly what God has instructed. They didn't add extra shouts in days one through six because they thought that might bring along the fracturing of the walls. They didn't say, oh, if seven trumpets are good, 14 would be better. They followed the Lord's plans explicitly, and this is laid out for us as readers in the way the story is told, and I want you to see this. I want you to see there is this in command fulfillment structure to the story. The way the events of day seven play out, Joshua gives four commands and then every one of those four commands are followed explicitly let me show you very simply so his first command is in verse 16 and this is busby shorthand he tells them shout for the city is given to you that is fulfilled in verse 20 they shouted and they captured the city and then beginning of verse 17 they're told to destroy everything and everyone that's fulfilled in verse 21 they destroyed everything and everyone next also verse 17 they're commanded to rescue Rahab and her family They do precisely that in verses 22 and 23. And then in verses 18 and 19, the fourth and final command, place the treasure in the Lord's treasury, and that's fulfilled in verse 24. The plan has to be obeyed. Here's the command. Here's the fulfillment of it. Because God's plans assure victory for his people. But when we deviate from His plans, there's no possibility of victory. When we break from God's revealed will, the only possible outcome is trouble. Tremendous trouble. We don't make God's plans better by attaching our plans to it or by trying to get God to veer our direction or just doing our own thing in our own way. Even when God's plans don't make sense to us or are hidden from us, we must still be strong and courageous to obey every word that comes from the Lord's mouth. The single unified message that comes from this scene is that the battle is the Lord's. This is not about the crumbling of the walls. The crumbling of the walls gets one verse in this whole story. This is about the God who leads his people, the God that we follow in this battle. And Doesn't God still work in this way? He works in ways that are still outrageous, unorthodox, in order to make clear to us that He's the one who has fought the fight. He's the one who grants the victory. The Bible is full of God's record of outrageous acts that leave no question in our minds that it is the Lord who fights and wins for His people. So a virgin conceived and gave birth to the God-man, Jesus Christ. That's crazy. He died penniless and powerless in the eyes of the world, executed on a Roman cross. And his death gives us eternal life. His humiliation grants us honor. His shame grants us glory. Our salvation is not through our moral achievement, but the utter mercy of God to desperate sinners. And three days after he died, he rose from the dead. Who's going to believe something as outrageous as that? But that's not the most outrageous thing of all. Because at South Shore Baptist Church, along with the Church of Christ, we believe that Jesus is coming again. And when he comes, he will take his church with him. We will see him. We will hear the trumpet blast. We will see him in the sky. This is not metaphor. This is not myth. This is not just some wish. We believe it to the core of our being because the Bible tells us this is the way it goes. And who among us modern people is going to believe this unorthodox, outrageous plan? So brothers and sisters, we got to follow the Lord as he unfolds redemption for you and I. All of history is moving towards that moment when the final battle is fought, the victory is won, and our redemption is complete. Now if God could take you and parachute you into the beginning of Joshua chapter 6, start of day 1. You might say to Joshua and the army of Israel, I know this plan is crazy, but God's got this. Just follow him. Just trust him. Be strong and courageous to obey everything that comes out of his mouth. And so the witness of Scripture parachutes into your life today and says, God's got this. Trust him. Follow him. Be strong and courageous to obey every word that comes out of his mouth because he's the warrior to whom we submit. He's the leader whose plan we follow. And finally, God is the victor who exalts his servants. He's the victor who exalts his servants. So the story ends with three actions surrounding Joshua, sort of rapid fire succession. The first is in verse 25. Joshua is credited with rescuing Rahab and her family. And I, just, I think it's a big deal that we never get far away from Rahab. She's always in sight in this story. And I think Rahab is one of the greatest soul winners in all the Bible. She knew judgment was coming. She knew protection came through the scarlet cord. And she did all she could to get her mom and her dad and her family and her friends, all those who could fit inside her apartment, those who would hear and believe. She did all she could to get them in, to rescue them from the deserved judgment of God that was coming. Rahab is an incredible evangelist. She shows us what it means to proclaim the gospel in a battle that is already won. What a hero of the faith. You would do well if someone said, who's your favorite person in the Bible to answer Rahab? She's incredible. So the story ends with Joshua getting credit for rescuing Rahab. Second, verse 26, Joshua speaks a curse over Jericho. It's a promise of judgment, God's judgment, on whoever would attempt to rebuild the city. And you would think, well, that's kind of pointless. I mean, Jericho's still there today. It's still, it's on the scene whenever Jesus is around. So apparently that was nothing. But no, it it was something. In fact, if you were to go to 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 34, King Hiel the Bethelite rebuilt Jericho and this warning of judgment from God was fulfilled in a grievous way in his life. The third thing that Joshua gets credited with in verse 27, the Lord exalts Joshua. Look at verse 27. The Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout the land. How did our story begin? Chapter 5, our story began with Joshua submitting to the Lord. How does the story end? End of chapter 6, the story ends with Joshua being exalted by the Lord. And why does the Lord exalt Joshua? Is it because of his military prowess? Is it because of his great abilities? Or or did he exalt Joshua because of his submission to the Lord, his humility before God, his strength and courage to obey? And doesn't that scene remind you of the true and greater Joshua, Jesus, who in Matthew 23, 12 said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So church, we have to be so careful Not pattern our lives after the world which sees power in pride, ability in arrogance, excellence in ego, nobility in narcissism. That's not the church of Christ. We must pattern our lives after our Lord who humbled himself all the way to death on the cross. And when we do that, then we are victorious with him. This is what it looks like when God fights and gives the victory to his people. The battle of Jericho teaches us what it's like when the Lord fights for us. He's the warrior to whom we submit. He's the leader whose plan we follow. He's the victor who exalts his servants. So as I said at the beginning, this story is not about God's plan to overcome your self-assigned Jericho's. But rather, this is descriptive of the regular ways God works in defeating evil and accomplishing the redemption of all things. You might still doubt that this is the case. You might still push back and say, Cody, I'm just not so sure about that. I mean, I've, I've, I've prayed this way that God would bring down walls and he's done these things and all that. That's fine. You can disagree with me, but I hope to convince you with one more piece of evidence. Because the Bible itself tells you and I that this story is about something far greater than our daily skirmishes. But it shows us how God is ultimately, finally bringing all things to an end. Ultimately and finally, accomplishing victory for his people. And the way the Bible tells us that is by using the city of Jericho and its destruction as a pattern that is fulfilled in the book of Revelation. Only there, it's called by a different name. It's called Babylon the Great. Now I want to show you these similarities between the Jericho of Joshua 6 and the Babylon of the book of Revelation. So it begins, Jericho is a city fortified by high walls and it stands in the way of Israel's inheritance. And Babylon, just like that, it's a city whose sin reaches to the heavens and has stolen the inheritance of God's people. Next, Jericho, filled with silver, gold, bronze, iron, linen, and scarlet. And Babylon the Great, described in the exact same way. Next, Joshua led the campaign against Jericho. Jesus, the greater Joshua, leads the campaign against Babylon. Next, The strategy of war in Jericho was a series of seven. Seven priests, seven horns, seven days, seven trips. And Jesus, he stood in the midst of seven churches, opened seven seals, and judgment commenced with seven trumpets and seven plagues. Next. At the seventh trumpet, all the people shouted against the city of Jericho. And in the book of Revelation, at the seventh trumpet, there's a loud shout in heaven where the kingdom of God is declared to overcome the kingdom of man. And finally... Rahab the harlot was delivered from death along with all of her house and in Revelation 19 and 21 some who belonged to the harlot city of Babylon were delivered from death and made a bride to marry the king of Judah. The champion of Joshua 6 is the champion of Revelation 22 he is your champion today. He is the victorious king who has conquered Satan and sin for his glory and the redemption of you his people he has fought and won, and given that victory to you. And that doesn't mean we're not going to take some blows from time to time. And that doesn't mean that we'll always feel like we're winning. Sometimes we will be overwhelmed by the enemy's attacks. But even just this morning, we read these words from Jesus in John sixteen thirty three: You will have suffering in this world, but be courageous, I have conquered the world. Our champion stood in our place at the cross, died our death, gives us his life, and he is coming again to end this fight once and for all. Your champion will not fail you. You are more than a conqueror through the love of Jesus Christ. Who can stand against him? Justice and righteousness and victory are his. And he fought and has won for you his little lambs. He loves you so much. Who can possibly stand against him? There is no one who will snatch you out of his hands. The God of armies fights for you. The destruction of Jericho calls us to trust the Lord with all our heart. The destruction of Jericho, the promise of this future salvation, calls us to trust the Lord with all our heart. And to lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways to acknowledge him, because his is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And God's church said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you said to us, You will have suffering in this world. And that is true today. Because of our sin, because of the sin of others, because of the decay of this creation, because of injustice of all kinds and brokenness and hurt and sorrow and grief and hard grief and sickness and death, Father, your word is true. We'll have suffering in this world. That's true. But Jesus, you also told us to be courageous because you have conquered the world. We proclaim that. We believe it. Wounded and we believe it. Hurting and crying, Father, we declare it. That your victory is our victory here and now. And God, we can't wait for that day when all this brokenness is gone. And until that day, Father, hold us securely. Hold our hearts. Keep our eyes on you that we would follow you. And Lord, though the battle rages around us in any number of ways, let us not lose heart. Let us not lose sight that you are the one who fights. You're the one who's won and given us that victory. So Lord, help us to live in that victory. Help us to live in the courage of a completed salvation and the assurance of a day of redemption that awaits. God, I pray this morning that your hope, your invitation has been heard by those in here that don't know Christ as their Savior, that they would surrender to him They would find their refuge in his blood that was shed for their sins and that salvation would come to their home today. Father, we love you. We trust you. Thank you for being our champion. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.